This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Today's episode is sponsored by the Steamboat Institute. The Steamboat Institute promotes America's first principles and inspires active involvement in the defense of liberty. Well, hey guys, it's Erica. Welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm so glad you're here today. My guest today is Helen Raleigh. Helen came to America from communist China with $100 in her pocket and a dream to get an education and live the life her parents and grandparents never got to live. Her dream and perseverance working multiple jobs while attending school full-time paid off when she achieved two master's degrees and ultimately became a business owner, author, speaker, and more. Helen's inspiring story of immigrating to the United States comes with some hard-won gratitude for the opportunities our country has given her. In today's interview, she tells us some of the things she experienced growing up in China and how she feels when she hears Americans today talking about bringing socialism to America. It's always so interesting getting the perspective of someone who wasn't born here, giving us a peek at someone else's understanding of the country I think a lot of us may take for granted. I really love talking with Helen, and I really think you'll enjoy this conversation. All right, everyone. Well, today I'm talking with Helen Raleigh. Helen, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me, Erica. Well, I explained a little bit of your story in the opening, the opener of the podcast today, but I would love to hear more from you. We know that you were born and raised in communist China and you came here to America in 1996 and you didn't know anyone. Uh, and I'm curious if you could just tell me that story in, in short and then also what gave you the courage to take such a huge step in your life? Well, thank you, Erica. That's a good question. Um, maybe I answer your second question first, that I would not be here in the United States if not for all the love and support from my family. I wrote a very detailed uh, story in my uh, first book, Confucius Never Said, and documented uh, it was a difficult decision for me to come especially personally, difficult decision for me to decide to come to United States to pursue a master's degree uh, because, you know, even for the first semester's a uh, couple thousand dollars, it was a tremendous amount for my uh, for my family. Um, I didn't want to I didn't want to do it, but my parents and my sister and brothers, uh, they gave me everything they have, and even borrowed the money from neighbors and friends, be all because they wanted me to have that experience to come to United States to be the first person to come to the United States, um, in, in my fa- from my family to come to the United States to to study to have the exposure to the best country in the world. So if not for them, I would not, you know, I wouldn't be here. Um, so when I first came, like you mentioned, I, you know, after my family paid for the first semester's um, uh, tuition, I had less than a hundred dollars in my pocket. And it's actually not even all U.S. dollars uh, because China had a, a foreign currency control back then. There was a a, a cap basically for how many how much money each person can carry and simply you know 
my family was not wealthy. I simply didn't have money. I didn't have that much money. So my brother was working for a hotel back then. So he had to secretly change, uh, exchange Chinese yuan with the hotel guests, try to get me some foreign currencies. So even a hundred dollars I have in my pocket, it's not all US dollars. I have like 10 English pound, like 20 Australian yuan. I remember when I went to the local bank when I first got here, was uh, it was the bank clerk was really surprised I had all these different foreign currencies. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's how I got started. And because all the love and support from my family, I was just determined that I have to su- I have to succeed. Like to me, failure is not an option. So I found the street uh, on campus jobs, uh, working at a Chinese restaurant and be a tutoring. Uh, to be a tutor for math for undergrad student and also working under the computer lab as a help desk assistant and at the same time maintain a full-time as a full-time student and so you know it was a very demanding but it was so very liberating because compared to my parents I know compared especially compared to my parents and their generation I know everything I do was for the benefit of, of me as an individual. And everything I do was in my own effort to shape my own destiny. And that's, that's the, uh, actually is a, was a luxury that my parents and their generation were not able to have. So even though life was difficult, it was challenging back then, but it was also very uplifting. So that's, that's kind of an early story. And, and where did you move in the United States? I first came to upstate uh, New York. Uh, it was a small college, a part of the SUNY uh, state of New York system. It's called Onianta. So it's like halfway between Binghamton and Albany. Okay. And so when you were growing up, was this always a dream that you had? And did you did you really think it would become a reality up until that point that you actually took the step? It was not a dream when I was growing up um, because the, in my book, I mentioned you know, I when I was young, China was still um, not was was not an open economy like like today. So I experienced um, many things that's unimaginable to you know same age Americans. You know, I experienced food rations. I experienced the starvations. I experienced the you know political brainwashing and all those things that's just unimaginable to uh, many you know, Americans that in my same age. Um, I didn't, China didn't start opening up uh, until I was in high school. And so it's, um, I didn't really imagine to come to United States until actually I first got the idea was uh, from my sister when I was already in college, it became a possibility. Uh, when I was in college, I met my first American professor. I met the first foreigner. And, um, you know, he really helped me open my eyes, kind of instill that idea in my head that, you know, coming to America to to study, you know, was something possible, but it was remotely possible. I didn't know how I would be able to have the money and the resources to do it. So he really was a great help. He helped me to, you know, open the doors. He wrote recommendation letters. He taught me about this whole uh, graduate school application process and also recommended some schools, you know, so he really was a great deal of help. If, if not for him, I probably would not be here. 
Did you speak English when you came over? I did, but not very good. <laughs> and I, I, there are many words that, like, I know grammar, but there are many words, like, especially slang words or just culture-related words that it's just things I've never exposed to. And mm -hmm. also, because China opened up so late, you know, late in my teens, um, there are many things that I'm exposed to are like we're like 20 years behind from everybody else mm. you know i remember when i went to grad school uh here in the united states and one of my classmates asked me you know who's my who was my favorite actor and i mentioned gregory pack mm -hmm. he never heard of him <laughs> and our secretary our 60 year old secretary or the american and she said oh i knew him he must be dead I'm like, <laughs> okay so like you're saying that movies and music and all of those mainstream things in America, when that finally was able to come into China, you were older. And so everything was just rolling in late. Yes, yes. I I, I had to I had to catch up. I, I'm still catching up today. Well, I can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think about that sometimes the way that slang words or just cultural references are just so ingrained in the way that we do things that I can't imagine trying to learn that going to another country and a new language. It almost seems like you would need a lifetime to really fully grasp everything. Yes, I'm telling you, assimilation is a lifelong process. You don't just compete yeah. in the first year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, you, you talked a little bit about what it was like growing up. Uh, I was wondering if you could expand on that because I think a lot of times people today, especially Americans, maybe younger Americans, don't fully grasp what it was like growing up in a place like communist China. Um, what are some of maybe the other things you experienced that would be sort of a warning to those that don't think of it as maybe all that bad? Let me just share with you one story um, from my book, Confucius Never Said. Um, when I was young, I mentioned earlier that uh, we lived through food ration. So the way the food ration was distributed is based on your age and the gender. So for the same age, boy and girl, the boy would get um, about four pounds more rice than a girl each month. Okay. And so, but my name was a boy's name because there was no ultrasound back then. Before I was born, my dad was for sure he's going to get another son. <laughs> so he got a name picked and the name has many, my, my Chinese name had many good meanings. So he didn't want to change it after, after I was born. So anyway, so on my household registration paper, which everybody had to have, it said my gender was a girl, but because my name was a boy's name, the, bureau, the bureaucrats made a mistake. So for a number of years, they've been giving me the food allocation that meant for a boy, the amount meant for a boy. And so even with that additional four pounds of rice, you know, every month, I was still hungry because it wasn't enough to begin with. And But one day, um, the, a, a Chinese police came to our house uh, because they do regular check and they can show up anytime. They, do, they really do not need a warrant. They can just come to, you know, come show up anytime to check on how many people live in this house and compare this to our household registration paper. Anyway, so he compared our paper to all of us at, at home, and he realized that they made a mistake. But of course, he wouldn't say they made a mistake. And then so they accused us intentionally fraud the government. Mm -hmm. so, he's, so he said, well, you guys have to pay back the, the, the actual food, you, you know, 
your daughter had. So yeah, and the food was distributed based on food stamps, and and the food stamp was different. The the usage is different compared to United States. United States only poor people, uh, people who are on welfare will get a food stamp. But in China, everybody receive a food stamp because the food stamp was a way for the government to limit the demand of the food supply because there was just not enough. Okay,、mm-hmm. so everybody had a food stamp. So so the the these officers ask our family to pay back the actual food I had. You know. By giving back additional food stamps, so it was really put our family, my family,、um, in additional diet we had to do in order to save enough food stamps to pay the government back. Okay, I, I had a quick question. I, this just popped in my head, and I hope it's not an ignorant one. But you know, you, we hear a lot about the the one child policy in China. Is that something that affected your family, or how prevalent is that in affecting families in the country? Yeah, I get asked about that question a lot. So China did not have, did not institute the, uh, implement the one-child policy until 1980. Oh, okay. And is that they not? And they did away with that recently, didn't they? Well, not exactly. So,、um, prior to 1980, under Chairman Mao. Uh, the idea was the more children you have, the better because you are producing more communist soldiers, right?、Mm-hmm. And but、uh, a- after Chairman Mao died, after after the、uh, communist parties, some、uh, wised up communist parties realized that China was Chinese economy was at the brink of a complete collapse after Chairman Mao died because due to his policies. That the Chinese com- economy cannot afford to support this many people. That's when, in 1980, they forcefully introduced the one-child policy, and that policy is deeply unpopular. It also created a gender、uh, imbalance in China,、yeah. and now they realize this huge problem because there's like millions of Chinese men will never be able to find wives because there are more boys and girls. You know? Yeah, that's it's just so. It just doesn't make any sense, and and so after that happened, when they once they implemented that, and there was this massive prejudice against girls and women. Did you feel、yes. that as a woman? I mean, what was it like to be a woman in a society where women were not valued? Well, um, so I, the most direct problem is the voices has been silenced by those baby girls who were forcefully aborted. They never get the chance to、mm. live. Right,、yeah. so so they are the they are the silent they are the silent victims, you know, in this whole atrocity. That many of them got abandoned because if you have a, a girl and if you still want a boy, the only way you can have a boy is you're abandoning your girl. So so it was a it was a tough.、Um, but I would have to say,、um, but in the general culture. Um, you don't. F- there's not a direct discrimination against a girl.、Mm-hmm. There's there's just policies. This one child policy had this indirect impact. I actually kind of reinforced the traditional belief that a boy somehow is better than a girl, and so. Um, but in terms of like、uh, getting equal education opportunities and all those other things, th- I didn't really feel a direct. Um, discrimination just because you know, you know, I was I was a girl. I actually think that that discrimination came after now 
um, more prevalent now when China becomes wealthy. Um, you know, there are many Chinese men have mistress, and you know, many companies openly hire girls. They want you to submit a picture to show you you are pretty, and so、mm. you know, to me, those actually the wealth. Uh, as China become more wealthy, and some of the ugly discriminations in the past actually are brought back to more in the daylight. So you're saying that if a business is looking to hire a woman, they actually ask her for a photograph as part of the interview. Yes. Oh my goodness! Wow. Yeah.、Um, yes. Well, thank you for answering that question because I, I was not sure. I didn't realize when that policy was implemented, and it really is such a sad. Legacy of of all the the women and girls that were lost in that,、um, but we'll go back to your your life journey in in the United States, where you said you came here, you you got two master's degrees, you ultimately became a business owner. Now you're an author, you're a speaker,、um, but you said failure was not an option. And on your website, in one of your videos, you said your favorite quote is "Never give up." And so, how does never give up? How has that defined your life to to take you where you are now? <laughs> well,、um, that's that has a lot to do with、um, you know things I learned from from my parents, especially from my dad. And、um, you know, when I was young, he got into a traffic accident. He, he in, which injured one of his legs. And he had to learn how to walk again. And I, I have a detailed story in my book, and I really learned from him that、um, you can never let the circumstances define your who you are and define your fate.、Um, no matter what the circumstances is,、uh, you, the, which means you know, a person has to find a way to overcome and never give up. And that really helped it,、um, for me when when I came here, because、uh, I mentioned I didn't know anyone. You know, we had no family here. I was the first family member here, from my family here.、Um, we had no friends other than the American professor. We had no friends, and、um, you know, I had to find find a work on my own,、uh, navigate a completely strange culture on my own.、Uh, even though I came here already speak. You know,、uh, speaking English, but my English was not that good. So, practically, I have to learn everything、uh, as new. And so many times that、um, it's that belief that、uh, he, I'm、uh, have I have this great opportunity that my parents and my grandparents, my great grandparents, the millions of people who came before me, or even a contemporary. Age that people did not have, so I cannot fail, and so it's it's just a strong belief. And、um, I believe if if you have the strong belief and you set a clear goal and work at it, and this is a this is what is make America's great is everybody can come here and remake themselves. Make because there's really no limitation for if you don't if you're willing to work hard and if you set your goal and there are plenty of opportunities for you to get where you want to be and so that is why I really reject when people tell me oh you know this country is somehow is originated through something bad and it it doesn't treat everybody fairly and to me it's You know, yes, this country has problems,、um, but the problems this country has 
compared to many other countries and are so insignificant, but the opportunities this country provides are so much more significant than anyone and can imagine from in any other country. That's why it doesn't matter where your skin color, doesn't matter where you come from. Uh, millions of immigrants, I'm, I'm just one of them. Millions of immigrants came here with nothing and can still end up living American dream. That is what makes this country so great. And I'm not the only one who never give up. You ask many immigrants you meet, they will tell you they never give up. And because they never give up, they now live in their American dream. Well, you talk in your book, The Broken Welcome Mat, you talk about how the immigration system is broken, though. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me how difficult was it for you to actually become a citizen? And how is that same system that you went through still causing problems today? I mean, we're seeing it, you know, we're seeing a lot of problems right now on the border specifically, mm -hmm. but um, everyone, I don't know one person that looks at our immigration and system and says, wow, this thing is working great. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? Right. So I will focus on the legal immigration piece first, because I don't think we talk about legal immigration enough, and which we should. Our legal immigration system is broken. Uh, it's basically uh, it's mainly driven by two concepts: family, family reunification, and the birthright citizenship. And so to somebody like me who does not have family here, uh, family reunification doesn't apply to me. But I have skill sets, you know, I have education, you know, I speak English and I consider myself would be a perfect fit, you know, in United States. But because, you know, because I don't have family here, I wasn't born here. So the path for me to become a U.S. citizen was actually quite narrow. I, I do it. I did it through work, through employment based um immigration. But because our system, our legal system is so focused on family reunification, a majority of the immigration visas is dedicated to that particular category. So for employment-based immigration, the number of visas is very, very limited. So people like me has to have to wait for a long time to wait for our turn, which, you know, for someone, when you are right at your most productive age, and you don't know if you can stay here legally for how long, and it, it would be difficult for you to make many important life you know, uh, decisions like, do you want to get married? If you get married, should you have kids? Um, should, should you buy a house? You know, should you change a job? And so there's a lot of limitations. So it's not a very good system. And in my book, I mentioned, I highly praised the immigration system like Canada and Australia have, which they have a merit-based system. So majority of visa goes to people uh, on employment basis. Uh, employment-based application uh, immigrants. So basically, they encourage people who come here already come to their country already have skill sets, have knowledge that they can find a job in their country, which they can create a win-win situation. So their economy can get the labor they need, uh, and for the immigrants, they know they're gonna find a job there. So to me, that is a much more, a much better system. And I'm glad the president is actually, President Trump is actually talking about a married immigration, um, married immigration system as a reform idea. He, he mentioned it a couple of times. So I think that that's really where we should go. And I think that that's, that's how we can fix our legal immigration. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you said you were gonna comment on illegal immigration as well? 
Yes. So I think the illegal immigration part part of it because um, our legal immigration is so broken um, that uh, you know it takes us a long time. And I said, like I said, the path is very narrow for somebody like me who has no relation here to want to you know to want to come here legally. Uh, so for people who cannot wait, then you know I'm not a endorsing what they do but for many people who cannot wait especially if it's a, a young man who has a family to take care of you know for them the easiest way the shortest cut is to just cross the border you know illegally mm -hmm. yeah and so that so that's one explanation of course right now what we're saying is that our asylum policy is also broken um the asylum by the UN definition is usually focused on, you know, political asylum. People people are uh, declared as, as asylum seekers because they're facing imminent life-threatening danger because of their beliefs or their, you know, genders, whatever. Um, but right now, that system has been abused. Um, the Wall Street Journal just reported now uh, because our own policy fault, um, children now became passport. They are openly being treated on the other side of the border. Uh, the coyotes offer a discount price for families taking children. So basically using children as a passport to try to come to this country and then declare asylum. They really jammed up the asylum process and which makes life so much more difficult for those other people who are actually facing uh, life-threatening danger or uh, a fear of persecution from their countries to go through the process. So we really have to change our asylum policies um, as well. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's like so many people really are just looking for a better life, but then there's this group of, of people with kind of corrupt, uh, uh, corrupt intentions that are using those people and using a bro broken system in, in a really awful way. And it's really hard to watch just because we feel sort of helpless, uh, you know, as just citizens yeah. that are sitting back and watching it. So thank you so much for commenting that, commenting on that. Um, and you mentioned the Wall Street Journal, and I know that you recently wrote an op-ed there about how socialism destroyed your great-grandfather's life in, in a sense. And, you know, today, you know it, we all hear it, socialism is, has become trendy to talk about. Uh, we have people running for president that are talking about that as if it's something they want to implement if they are elected in some ways. So what is it when you hear candidates talking about that or just citizens talking about how they want to implement socialism in some way, what does that, what thoughts do you have about that? <laughs> my initial, uh, my first reaction is I just want to scream. <laughs> I want you. I want. I want to shout out on top of the on the top of roof. Just tell people, don't do it. You know, mm -hmm. and that's that's really why I wrote my first book, Confucius Never Said. I I think stories matters. Real life experience matters. Um, I I recognize that when you know when when I tell people, hey, socialism is responsible for you know, killing 100 million people, I know that number is so big, it doesn't make any sense to most people, right? As horrific as it sounds. So I, I learned that we have to, when we talk about socialism, the evil of socialism, we have to put names and faces to the sufferings. 
Um, that's why I shared the story of my great grandfather. Um, that's actually his story came from uh, was an excerpt from a, a book Confucius never said. His story appeared in the first chapter, and so I think it's important when we talk about socialism, we need to we need to put a name and faces to individualize those sufferings. Um, because people can dispute about the policies, but what they cannot deny, they cannot dispute was the real life stories, real life sufferings. Um, you know, I lost the family members during the man-made famines. I mentioned in my book, um, I lost, uh, you know, my dad the other day, uh, I was talking to my father and he told me, hey, his arthritis is really bad. So I'm like, oh, dad, how? I just, so I just asked him, I said, how did you get arthritis, you know, so bad? He told me it was because when he was young, uh, you know, lived in China, that um, he had to go to uh, this elementary school, which is far away from his village. And there was, um, the, the, the road was flooded and there was no, you know, nothing to help him and so he has to cross the uh, flooded waist deep water as a child to you know to walk to the school every day and you know because half his body soaked in the water every day for for months that's how he got arthritis mm. and because the medical care was so poor back then, his family didn't even know what was caught, you know, what caused his pain. They saw that he broke a bone or something, so they were they they find some bone setting doctors try to, get, you know, work on his bones. So they didn't they had no idea he had arthritis. You know, it just stories like that really, you know, just breaks my heart. Um, you know. Do you do you uh, distinguish between socialism and democratic socialism? Because I hear people say, "Oh, it's not the same thing." What are what do you think about that? I think democratic socialism is a bait and switch scam. Yeah, there's it's like a it's like a put, try to put a lipstick on a pig. I mean, it's not even fair to the pig, you know. But it's still <laughs> it's like there's nothing democratic about socialism. Because you, if you look at the definition of socialism, it's about the government owning the majority of the uh, pro production and the distribution of resources. It's not done by a democratic way, and it, it's done by force. It's done through, you know, it's been done through coercion. That is why, no matter where socialism uh, was implemented, whether in China, Soviet Union, Cuba, Venezuela, you know, all these countries again had very different culture, different language, different history, and different people, yet they have one thing in common, which was socialism failed in all these different countries. So there's nothing, demo just because today's socialists try to add a an adjective in front of socialism does not change the evil nature of socialism. We have to push back forcefully, to let, very forcefully to let people know there's no distinction and from a democrat, democrat socialism versus the socialism we all, we all know, it's the same thing. It's the same shades of evil. Mm -hmm. So another thing that we hear a lot about these days is white supremacy. And I was wondering, as a, an immigrant to this country, as an Asian American woman, have you ever felt discriminated against? And do you think that white supremacy is a real thing in this country? Um. So it's like a layered. I'm gonna give you a layered answers. Um, f first of all, I I don't feel I've been discriminated often. 
um, it's not something define define me, and I I do I did experience individual prejudice, and that can come from people of all skin colors, not just white, not that not just white people, mm-hmm. but I did I did experience individual individual prejudice, um, but I can tell you I I experienced that kind of individual prejudice when I was in China too, um, because sometimes people some people are just they are stupid they are prejudiced <laughs> yeah. they are biased so and so I don't think it, I don't think it's a systematic issue here in in the United States. Um, for you know, because I think if it is a systematic issue, then I wouldn't be here talk to you like this, right? I would have no chance to succeed. And and you, you if it's a systematic issue, then you would not have all these millions of immigrants who will still want to come here and be successful. So so to me, that is a wrong narrative to think it's a systematic issue. But does it exist? Yes, absolutely. And you know, I do believe white supremacists exist um, because when I uh, published my book about uh, the broken welcome mat, and it was right around the 2016. And I had some doubts about the pre- you know, then candidate Trump's uh, some of, some of his rhetoric about the, you know immig- uh, immigrants, mm-hmm. and I received hate mails from both the far right and the far left, and you know, use similar some similar languages, you know, tell me to uh, go back. You know the the uh, four letter words of where I uh, where I came from, and you know, and I don't belong here, and some really derogatory, um, you know, phrases about the Chinese, about my heritage, about my accent, you know, about all those things. So I do think it exists, but I think they are very fringe. Uh, group too. I think majority of the American people I encountered uh, are very warm and generous and respectful and helpful, and that is why many people come to this country, like me, who had no roots here, can are able to establish a root here and live a very comfortable and happy life. Do you still have concerns about the way President Trump speaks about immigrants? Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I wish he is. I like his policy better than his rhetoric. <laughs> yes, I think he actually has better policies. But sometimes, um, you know, sometimes I wish he tweeted a little less. And sometimes I wish he tweets a little bit differently. Really, refl- because I think he's the office of U.S. presidency carries certain dignity and. Uh, uh, demands respect, and so I, I I just think some of his uh, tweets are not necessarily reflect that. But I I I I try to be very fair with him. So when I I generally like his policy better than his rhetoric. So when mm-hmm. I um what I'm trying to do is especially as a political opinion writer that I try to focus on his policy ideas and try to separate the policy from the person who's uh who tweets. Yes, I think I don't think you're alone in that, Helen. <laughs> um, so we were in Steamboat Springs last week at the Freedom Conference with Steamboat Institute, and you spoke about the protesters in Hong Kong right now, and you even asked us to stand up and hold hands in solidarity, and we sent out this picture of us saying, you know, we stand with you, Hong Kong protesters. And so I think a lot of people hear, oh, there's this thing going on in Hong Kong, but aren't fully informed for those listening, could you just briefly explain why are people protesting and why is it so important that we're supporting them and that their voices are heard? 
Yes. By the way, the picture turned out great. Yeah. I am I so appreciate everybody at the Steamboat uh, Institute and all the attendees, you know, indulging me and show their support. And I just, it, it's such a wonderful picture. I love it. I've been sharing it everywhere. Good. Well, we're glad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and yes. So regarding to Hong Kong, uh, the protest uh, initiated because of an extradition bill. So basically this bill was uh, rushed through the uh, Hong Kong legislature by the Hong Kong uh, chief, uh, Carrie Lim. The, the essence of the bill, uh, should the bill become law, it will allow Beijing to demand the Hong Kong handover anyone that Beijing considered as a criminal. Mm. Well, as we all know, uh, Beijing as an authoritarian regime, their def- definition of criminal is pretty pretty wide. Yeah. And so, so Hong Kong people are rightfully concerned that uh, any human rights activist, any dissidents, uh, dis- dissidents, or any uh, China critics, Beijing critics, uh, would be forcefully sent to uh, mainland China if, if this uh, extradition bill became uh, becomes law. So that's how the protest originated. But now, after two million people peacefully when you know took to the streets of Hong Kong to demand that the government Hong Kong authorities to withdraw the bill the Hong Kong authority refused to do that even though they said the bill is, is dead but it's really the bill is just dormanted so any legislature or any future uh, chief of Hong Kong can still bring that bill back that is why people are still protesting and also the protest at this stage has expanded um, beyond the just uh, people protesting this extradition bill. Um, uh, over the last 20 years, since Hong, uh, Hong Kong's handover from the UK to Beijing, Hong Kong people have seen the first hand, you know, witnessed the first hand that how their economic freedom and the political freedom have been eroded under the Beijing's governance of Hong Kong. So. Now, at this stage, the protest has expanded to a pro-democracy protest. Um, people, Hong Kongers, want not only just the bills being withdrawn, but they also want universal suffrage, which was something Beijing promised under the One Country, Two System uh, Declaration in 1984. And so, so that's why people the protest is still going on, and the purpose of the protest has expanded. Um, why should we care? I mentioned there are several reasons at the uh, conference. You know, from both econo- from economic standpoint, from national security, from a legal, from a strategic standpoint, there are many reasons we should we should care. But ultimately, I just want to emphasize the moral reason. The United States has a unique role since its birth. You know, in uh, President Lincoln's words, our country, United States, is the last best hope for humanity. You know, we are the beacon of light for everyone who seeks freedom and rise up against the tyranny. This is why you see this uh, in 1989, student, Chinese students on Tiananmen Square erected a Chinese version of Statue of Liberty, and they read the Declaration of Independence. This is why you see Hong Kongers waving American flags and sing American anthem. We, our country stands for something. We stand for freedom and liberty. So, and Hong Kong is has traditionally, historically, has been this shiny example, this best example to show 
how the wonders of capitalism, right? Hong Kong has absolutely no resource. It's a tiny little island. Why it's always ranked number one in terms of freedom and prosperity? It's because capitalism. So if we, our country, let Hong Kong fail, let Hong Kong fall in front of our eyes and do nothing, it will be considered a failure for all of us. And it will change the strategic competition between United States and uh, uh, China. It, it will also hurt us back home because, as I mentioned in the conference, here back home, we have we are having this battle of ideas between capitalism and socialism. It's very likely next year, depends on how the presidential election turned out, as you mentioned, there are some real socialists are running for president. If they, one of them become the U.S. president, we're on our way to socialism. So we have we have a battle of ideas to fight here domestically. So if we does nothing to help this freest city, this best example of capitalism, how are we going to win the battle of ideas back home? So I think it's inherently for American people's self-interest, for our country's self-interest, for what we stand for, we should stand in solitary with Hong Kong people to help maintain Hong Kong's economic and political freedom. Is it, does it, is it going to work? Is the protesting going to do what it's intended to do? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm pessimistic about it, uh, but I think um, Hong Kong people deserve to have a have a fight, deserve to take a stand, and that's why it's important that we join them in solidarity. Um, unfortunately, when you when United Kingdom signed that declaration of a uh, one country two system, handed Hong Kong back to China in 1997, it's pretty much sealed Hong Kong's you know, fate. You know, you know to present day. So I think there's definitely lessons to be learned from this uh, historical experiment. Um, but I think, you know, uh, even if this is a Hong Kongers uh, Alamo moment, we should stand with them. We should, uh, we should take a stand. We should not just do nothing, let them fail. All right, Helen. Well, thank you so much. I have a couple of end of the podcast questions, a little bit more fun, a little bit more lighthearted if you have a couple of minutes left. Uh, I wanted to ask, do you have any role models or people that you look to as inspiration or leaders as you continue in this work of you know, promoting freedom and talking about your story? Well, my role, mod uh, my role models are my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, in, I I mentioned their stories in you know in my book Confucius never said they they are extremely kind hardworking and they are also Christian they they both been baptized they have very strong faith and sometimes I feel their faiths are much stronger than mine and so I always look up to them and I always remind myself. Um, you know, not to make them disappointed in me. So don't do anything, you know, disappoint, disappointing them. And also learn from their examples, uh, from their sacrifice, from their suffering, and be grateful for everything I have. I'm just so grateful, you know, for my life, um, for all the help and love and support they provide me. Um, the, especially the first year when I came here, 
all my families, especially my parents, everybody wrote me a letter on a weekly basis. And those letters carried me through many dark days. So, yeah, so I always look up to my parents um, uh, as a role model to inspire and keep moving forward. If you could offer a piece of advice to the next generation, what would it be? Never give up. Never give up. That's a good one. I should have known. Yeah. Yeah. No um, Are you much of a reader? I always like to ask people if they have any recent book recommendations or podcast recommendations or anything like that. Yes. So I'm reading a biography about the John D. Rockefeller. Hmm. And I actually learned a great deal. So it's actually gave me an article idea. I wrote an article for today. You know, today, August the 28th, is the 160 years anniversary of the discovery of oil well in Pennsylvania. That's a give the birth to the oil industry we know today, wow. not just in the United States, but around the world. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So what's the book called, do you know? Uh, it's called, uh, the. Uh, it, it basically is called the John D. Rockefeller. Okay. And uh, Oh, Titan, it's called Titan. Titan, the life story of John D. Rockefeller. It, it, it was written by Ron Chernow. He's mm-hmm. also the author of uh, Alexander Hamilton's biography. Okay, yeah, I've seen his name before. Uh, do you listen to podcasts at all? I do. Um, so I'm listening to a podcast uh, called the Hardcore History. Uh-huh. And it's produced by a gentleman here in Colorado. And, you know, it's each episode is like a several hours long, but it's so different and interesting. He really dive into so much historical details that I did not know. And he talks about everything, history in Asia, history in Europe, and just it, it, it's fascinating. All right. I'll have to check that one out. All right. Last question. As you look to the future, um, you know, you're, you seems like you're thriving and you're speaking and writing. Um, any dreams or hopes for yourself professionally in the next five to 10 years? Uh, that's, that's hard to, that's hard to see, uh, to see. Uh, I'd like to write a few more books, even though I know that people nowadays are, uh, you know, don't have enough attention span to read more books, but I think, uh, I do. Uh, oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I still have a I still have a few books in, in me that I like to I like to write, and you know I hope someday I can um, be on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, so that's my that's probably my biggest dream is to write a book and make it to the New York Times bestseller list. That's an awesome goal. I love that. I will be there when you do that. I will be buying copies to help you out. So let me know (laughs) when your next book is getting ready to be published because I'll be on your launch team. Thank you. Yeah, I'll I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) All right, Helen. Well, I'm so glad I got to meet you last weekend. And just I love following your work and really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me for this podcast interview. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining the podcast today. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Helen and that you'll check out the Steamboat Institute if that's uh, if this conversation is something that interested you. They have a lot of great things to say about some of what Helen was talking about today. And I do some work for them on the side and have really enjoyed my time working with them. If you've been listening to the podcast, thank you so much. Please share it with a friend. That's the best way to get the word out there help me be able to talk with more inspiring women like Helen. Thanks a lot, and I'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast. 
which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.